Well, good evening. Welcome back to our series on the prophets. I appreciate uh, Bill Search filling in for me last week. He's a really good teacher, and I know you really enjoyed it. Um, I was in Washington, D.C. for a couple of days for National Prayer Breakfast and some other events up there, so I really appreciate Bill talking um, about uh, prophets and continuing kind of in our series. So tonight is probably, this series started kind of easy and we're just ratcheting it up as we go. And so in this lesson, is probably one of the deeper lessons and it probably has more modern application than anything we've talked about so far. So let me say a prayer for us and we're gonna jump right in. Lord, thank you for the blessings of allowing us to gather. We don't take that for granted because not all of our brothers and sisters in the world are able to gather together the way we are. Not all of them can openly study your word together. And Father, we thank you for that grace. We pray for our nation, that you would turn the hearts of all of our leaders toward you. Father, I pray that you would do your will through this nation, that we might be a beacon of justice, we might be a beacon of freedom in the world, and that your name might be lifted up. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as always, here's the number you can text your questions in during class. It's on your electronic and on your handout here. So in this lesson, we've been looking at the prophets thematically. Uh, this is a nine session lesson and we couldn't get through all the prophets in that time. So I wanted you to be acquainted with the prophets, particularly what are called the minor prophets. So we're going to talk about some of the themes, some of the messages that they were charged to give. So this way, hopefully, you'll, you'll feel more comfortable when you read uh, the minor prophets and they won't seem so strange. Hopefully you'll have a sense of the historical context because God's message is always spoken into a context. It's not just spoken into one context. For example, you're gonna see the messages from today that, that we're gonna talk about from 2,700 years ago are just as applicable in this context as they were in that one. But God's word is not disconnected from the context. If you read very much philosophy, you realize that philosophy fundamentally is untethered from reality. And that's not a, a pejorative comment, it's just the nature of philosophy, is to sort of build castles that are independent of, you know, castles of thought, if you will, that are independent of any particular time or place. The beauty of God's word is that it is true, it is beautiful, and it's intimately connected with the history into which it's set and the times in which we live. So let me show you what I mean, we're gonna jump in. First, a little bit of history of the Jewish people. Everything that I say about the Jewish people or the Israelites, I want you at the same time to be thinking about Christians the kingdom of God. When I talk about the kingdom of Israel, I want you to think about today the kingdom of God. Just as the Israelites, the Jews, were inhabitants, God's people in the kingdom of Israel, followers of Jesus Christ are God's people in the kingdom of God. And what you're gonna see in their history plays out almost exactly in our reality today. So let me remind you where the Jewish people came from. The exodus from Egypt, this is in the second book of the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures, the book of Exodus. 
The Exodus, which is an historical event, was the defining event in the history of the Jewish people. So I'm gonna use traditional dates, and we could argue about these for a long time, but this will just be cleaner. Traditionally speaking, we think of Abraham at 2000 BC, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob is also known as Israel, had 12 boys, they have a bunch of kids, and they become the Israelites, the literally the children of Israel. Well, they end up leaving the land of Canaan, where Abraham had lived, and they went into Egypt because of a famine. And the scripture tells us there were 70 of them when they went there. And you can read the book of Genesis and see the story of Joseph and how all this came about. But as Exodus opens, they go into the land of Egypt, 70 people. Story goes on in the book of Exodus, they become enslaved by Pharaohs, the kings of Egypt, for for purely economic reasons. I mean, it's real history happening just like it, it's happening today in many places in the world. But they're enslaved for 400 years. God sends a deliverer, probably remember Moses, and Moses is the one who God chooses to lead them out. And so they leave Israel, or excuse me, Egypt, and they go to Sinai. When they leave, there are approximately two million of them. And so God fulfilled one of his promises to Abraham that he would make his descendants into a great nation. Well, they certainly are a lot of people. But they're not yet a cohesive people. And so they, they have certain familial ties. I mean, you got two million people, but they're pretty much all related. But still, that's a lot of people, that's a lot of tribes, a lot of clans. It's very much a tribal society bound by common fate and common ethnicity. That's not enough to bind people together. God has it in mind to bind this nation together around him, himself and his covenant with them. You remember they go to Sinai and shortly in the book of Exodus, you get God making a covenant with this group of people. And that covenant, I'm picking from Deuteronomy, which is a little bit later, but here's the fundamental glue of the covenant between God and these people. This is what makes a Jew a Jew. This is what makes the Israelites a nation, a people with a common identity. What's their identity? This is it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one true God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, they're going back to Canaan, to the promised land, is, there, is where God has said to, to, he was gonna take them. So when he brings you into the land, he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a land with large flourishing cities you didn't build, houses that you didn't provide, wells you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So they become a great number of people 
And this covenant with God gives them a unifying identity. Pause, fast forward. You and I as Christ followers share a common identity even though we have no common ethnicity. We don't have any common experiences particularly. I mean, to become a child of God, you do not have to have a shared experience. You don't have to have shared ethnicity. But we do share this covenant with God and this fundamental commitment that our identity is found in Christ. That's what's happening here. God is giving this people an identity built around him. So they go to Sinai. If you remember, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. There are actually 613 commandments or laws in the law of Moses, in the covenant that God makes with this group of people. But the first one of these, this is at Sinai. So this first quote is from Exodus. The second one is just as they're about to enter the promised land and they're camped right across from Jericho and there are 40 years in between, okay? God spoke these words. This is written on the tablet of stone. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down or worship them. So the first commandment and the 10 commandments is you'll have no other gods beside me. Your identity is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? 40 years later, book of Deuteronomy, as they finish their 40 years in the desert, they're ready to enter the promised land. He reiterates this. In fact, that's what Deuteronomy means, a second telling of the law. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. And that's exactly what they were going into. This is the land of uh, Israel, land of Canaan, that's what it was called then. These are just two different maps. And they entered into the land of Canaan, into this land and lived along these highlands, these mountain range right there. They lived along those highlands and, and this now we're moving on into uh, the book of uh, Joshua and the conquest of this land as they moved into this land. And they're going to live in this land and they're gonna be people who were already there living around them. So here is the nation of Israel defined by this covenant. Their identity is given because of, of the God whom they serve and they're in the midst of a lot of people who serve other gods. Pause, fast forward. That's exactly true for you. The kingdom of God today doesn't have a geographic boundary. If anything, we are more surrounded by people with other gods than Israel was. We literally are dispersed into the world. And whether you're at school, the soccer fields, at work, wherever you are, you are in the midst of people who have other gods. Israel was geographically in the middle of people who had other gods. And I wanna tell you a little bit about 
what happens to them as they go into the land. And I want to tell you a little bit about some of the other gods. So here are some gods of the people around them that you will read about in the Bible. So first is Moab. Moab's primary god, they worship many gods. Primary god was Chemosh. Uh, Chemosh was a, a martial god, a god of war. Moabites were warlike people. Think Mars, uh, the god of war for the Romans and the Greeks, Ares and Mars. Edom had a god called Kos, who was a fertility god. And there were a lot of fertility gods. And if you think about it, if you are going to think of something to worship in those days, your livelihood depended upon agricultural productivity. You needed rain, you needed grass for your livestock, you needed the, the uh, plants to grow, etc. And so you had a god of fertility. Today, we have a god of cyber currency because that's what we need now, right? But seriously, a lot of fertility gods whom they thought if they appeased that god or worshiped that god, then the rains would come and they would be prosperous. Ammon, uh, the god that is probably most known for the Ammonites is Molech. And Molech is best known from the Old Testament as a god who demanded child sacrifice. And you even see the Israelites participating at some points in their history in child sacrifice. The Philistines worshiped, uh, the primary god was Dagon. They worshiped many gods, but Dagon was their primary god. And Dagon was also a god of prosperity. Fertility and blessings, but they lived on the coast. They were also traitors. So not so much a fertility god, a grow the plants kind of a god. That's true, because they lived in some great farmland on the coastal plain, but they were also traitors. So Dagon was a god of success and prosperity. The Canaanites, and one of the reasons I showed you the, uh, I want you to see the map on the right, is Canaanites is a kind of a catch-all uh, term because there actually were a bunch of tribes living here. And so you can see some of the names. Many of these names are mentioned in the Bible because the Canaanites, it wasn't like there was a nation there. There were just a bunch of tribes who were able to hold on to little pieces of territory. And they had a lot of different gods, but the primary god and goddess uh, of all of these tribes, you probably know from uh, the Bible as this little guy, Baal. The word Baal originally, it's, just, it's a word, and it means owner, and then it came to mean Lord, and then it came to be applied as the Lord with capital L. In other words, Baal became a god. He displaced an earlier Canaanite god whose name was El, E-L. And so Baal, around the time that the Israelites are there, Baal is being widely worshiped. Baal was a god of storms, wind, rain, consequently fertility. The reason he's always standing like this is he originally had a lightning bolt in his hand. But you know how toddlers are. They lose all the little pieces, right? And so we don't have the lightning bolts anymore, but that's what he's doing. He's like the storm god. And basically they would worship him and he would bring them fertility. He not only brought them fertility in terms of good crops, but came to be known as bringing human fertility as well. Speaking of which, 
He had a girlfriend. Call it a consort if you're a scholar. It's a girlfriend. And so Asherah, or Ashtaroth, or some would say Ishtar, Astarte, but basically you'll see it in the Bible as Asherah. And that word means lady or goddess, and she was worshiped as the consort of Baal. Her symbol was a tree. So you get this idea again of fertility, and by just comparison, they would often just set up a wooden pole near shrines that would represent her. It's representative of a tree, meaning prosperity. And so you get Baal and you get Asherah together and they were worshiped and that, there are better pictures of her, but that's the least pornographic one I could find. And this is rated PG-13. You get the idea of them as being fertility in every aspect. And the worship was in that way as well. They worshiped them as the god and goddess of crops, but also as the god and goddess of human fertility. The Baals, you'll see that plural a lot because different tribes would worship Baal in different aspects. So if you read any historical literature, you'll see Baal of this place and Baal of that place, but it's fundamentally this God. This is probably the God you read about the most in the Bible. But you get the idea. They're surrounded by all these powerful nations who are worshiping a variety of gods and they each have their favorite, if you will, or they're, they're best known for. And so the Israelites are being pulled. They literally have a covenant with God, Yahweh. That's their identity, but they're living amongst people who worship many other gods and they're very much pulled toward it. Okay, so I wanna to talk to you about uh, because there's, I want to make sure we understand what's actually happening with the Israelites because I'm going to argue the same thing happens with us. Just like them, we have an identity and our identity is fundamentally who we are in Christ. We have a new covenant with God and that defines us as a people. We also live amongst people who worship a variety of gods and those gods pull at us as well. Well, there are different ways, if you will, to believe in God. One is to be agnostic. This is very popular. And basically an agnostic says it is either unknown or unknowable, two flavors of agnosticism. Either I don't know if there's a God or no one can know if there's a God. Very popular, but no one is actually an agnostic. Everybody believes in something. There were no agnostics in the time of the Israelites. Atheists, atheists said, there is no God. In fact, that's a, that's a faith statement right there. That's a truth claim. There are no gods. And that's very popular today, not so popular in the time of the Israelites. Polytheism is the belief that there are many gods, tons of polytheists in the ancient world. The Greeks, the Romans, all of these nations around Israel are polytheistic. They believe there are many gods. I mean, Baal and Asherah, just an example. There are two, for example. They worship Shamash, the sun god. You'll see that in a lot of the literature. You'll see it in a lot of the place names in Israel as well. But basically, they worshiped a lot of gods. They were polytheistic. They believed there were many different gods who served very different purposes. And then, of course, there are the Israelites, monotheists. Abraham is probably historically speaking, the first monotheist. In other words, the first 
to say, and the one to whom God revealed himself, there is one God. Remember the fundamental confession of the Jewish faith is the Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's just one God. That's the fundamental confession of the Jewish faith, okay? Is that commitment to monotheism. The covenant is between one God, not many gods, and Israel. There's one more though that you don't hear much about and it's called henotheism. Henotheism is believing in one primary God but acknowledging the existence of other gods. Henotheism is what the Israelites did when they were unfaithful to God. Israelites didn't leave the worship of Yahweh to become agnostic or to become atheists. Some of them probably sold out and became full-blown polytheists, but most of what happens in Israel is more subtle than that. And I'm gonna to suggest to you that what's happening today is more subtle than that. It's henotheism. Henotheism is, well, of course, Yahweh is our national God. And Yahweh is the one with whom we have the covenant. But of course, we go down for the, uh, you know, the orgies at the temple of Baal, and we've thought about sacrificing our kids to Molech before. And in other words, their idea was, we're gonna participate in the worship of many gods because, hey, Maybe they will bless us, but if you want to know, we're Jewish, so our main God is Yahweh. That's henotheism. That's not monotheism anymore. That's not a commitment to one God. That is, you are the primary God, but I also serve other gods. Does that make sense? That's what's happening when you read the Old Testament. If you ever wonder about this idea of idolatry, which is what we're going to talk about, idolatry was not necessarily becoming a polytheist and say, I don't believe Yahweh created the world. I don't believe Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. It was more subtle than that. It was, yes, Yahweh is a God and we do need to make those sacrifices, but you know what? Baal brings the rain. We should probably make sacrifices to Baal as well. And to cover all our bets, we really should probably go to the festival of the sun God and we should participate in this as well. Henotheism is what Israel became, is they watered down the worship of the one true God by adding in other gods. Well, the scripture makes two arguments against this. God has two fundamental problems with this, with the Israelites. I'm gonna give you the lesser one, then I'm gonna give you the greater one. The lesser one is this, start in Isaiah. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. He says, fundamentally, he says, you in your house, and this is known archeologically by the way, in the houses of some Israelites in archeological digs, you wouldn't expect to find a little statue of Yahweh. That's not the way that worked. But you wouldn't expect to find any idols or any gods, but you do sometimes find little images of Asherah, little images of Baal, small 
wooden carved, or the images of Baal that I showed you were metal. Both of those were metal uh, cast. You will find those sometimes, and you know then what happened was, they still worship Yahweh, but they've got their little idols in their house. Excuse me, Isaiah goes on. And this is God speaking to his people. Isaiah is speaking right around, all these prophets I'm gonna tell you are speaking right around the same time. Latter half of the eighth century BC. I wanna focus there. But so they're well after the law of Moses. They know way better than to assimilate into the gods of the nations around them. But listen to what Isaiah says. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. By the way, this is subtly ironic. He's talking here about a craftsman who's gonna make an idol. And what's he make it from? Trees that God makes grow rain that God brings. There's a subtle mockery happening here, like a, what are you thinking, people? And so he says, he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes. Then it becomes fuel. He takes part of that tree and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And with the rest of the tree, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. This is is God saying, think about what you're doing. Half of this tree you burn in the fire and eats meat and roasts it and warms himself and says, I am warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a God, his idol, falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Do you see that one of the issues God has with this is If you'll just stop and realize, you'll realize that piece of tree, half of which you burned in the fire, the other half of which you're now bowing down and worshiping. Does this not seem inconsistent to you people? You know, honestly, part of me thinks God's main problem with idolatry is it's so dumb. He's like, I thought you guys were smarter than that. But in all seriousness, he's making a serious point. And when Isaiah preaches this, the people in the congregation have to say, Yeah, he's got a point there. That's exactly what we did. And sure enough, we got the little statue of Baal. I got a little piece of wood, a little wood uh, pole for Asherah that we go bow down and leave some offerings and hope that she'll bless us. You know, maybe the other half of that tree is what I burned in my fireplace. And so he's making a really good point to them. And then Habakkuk, same time frame. What prophet is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker, and this is also is very subtle, is that your idol has to be made by you. And then you are going to worship it. You see the irony behind this. I mean, it's just an attempt by God to appeal to the reason of his people. He says its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach you? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. And this is where this, I I put this in here because you probably heard this before. This is where it comes from. But the Lord 
is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, you have to make these gods and they can't even walk around or speak. By the way, you wanna know where the Lord is? He's in his temple that he made and you can be quiet while he speaks to you. And so you see this appeal to them. What is he fundamentally saying? And this is the same thing God would fundamentally say to us because idols were something that people turned to. Here's my definition of an idol. Not just a carved image, that's one manifestation of an idol. An idol is something you turn to to make sense out of your life and to help you achieve the goals that you want to achieve. It is something that you think in exchange for your devotion, exchange for your allegiance, in exchange for your worship, so in exchange for devoting yourself to this, it will then deliver to you happiness, prosperity, whatever it is that you are seeking. Uh, health, wealth, straight white teeth, higher ACT scores, whatever it is that you want. An idol is something that you are willing to exchange your devotion to get what you want. It's something that will answer the problems of your life. And if you think about it that way, then obviously Baal is an idol and obviously Dagon is an idol. But anything you and I turn to that the culture around us promises will solve your problems in life is an idol. If only you will give your commitment, your devotion, your quote worship, your devotion to this, then it will deliver you the good life or it will deliver you prosperity or health or wealth or whatever it may be. That's fundamentally an idol, even though it doesn't take that shape. And so the nations around us also give their devotion and their allegiance to an awful lot of ideas, an awful lot of uh, concepts that they believe are gonna deliver their answers. And what God is saying is, no idol can give you the answers that you seek. Question. Were the tribes that were already in Canaan um, offspring of Ishmael and Esau? Uh, good question. So, not exactly. Let me find a map here. I need a big map. Yeah, let's use this one. Okay, so we'll go back here. So, fundamentally, what happens, according to the Bible, I'm gonna give you a real short version of this is think about Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. And so if you get Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac becomes the child of promise. And so Isaac is here. Ishmael goes into the Arabian Peninsula. That's Saudi Arabia off, uh, off the right. And so Ishmael becomes the Ishmaelites and he becomes, he has 12 sons, they become a great nation. This is, these are the Arabs, basically. Arabic people trace their descent to Ishmael long, long, long time ago. I mean, this is 2000 BC, but trace their descent there. He is the father of the 12 tribes of Arabia. These are the Arabian people, okay? Down, down, all the way down through history. So for example, Muhammad, now think about this. This is roughly 2000 BC, Muhammad, is you know, 600 AD, way, way later. He's an Arab and traces his descent to Ishmael, hence to Abraham, hence 
some serious disagreements in the Middle East. But my point is, Ishmael goes and in the Arabian Peninsula, populates that with the tribes of Arabia. These other areas, the Moabites, Edomites, Ammonites, have different origins in the Bible, and I won't go into what the Bible says, but they come along at different periods of time, and their ancestry doesn't go back to Ishmael or to Isaac. So, real short answer to that question, but fundamentally, they all have an origin somewhere, but it's, that's not the origin of, of that group. Okay, do you think that the Jews fell to Henotheism due to mixed ethnicities in the region um, that brought social pressure for cultural inclusivity as we see today in America? Yes, that's a, that's a very good question. There are two fundamental reasons in my mind, this is an opinion now, I'm not giving you a scripture, I'm just giving you an opinion. Two fundamental reasons that they and we feel great pressure to do it. One is uh, cultural pressure. In other words, it just comes down to my neighbor is going to the festival of Baal. It's gonna be fun. They've got inflatables for the kids. Uh, the barbecue there is awesome. And my neighbor's invited me to go. And if I say no, they're gonna go, what's the matter with you? Are you not a religious person, etc." You get peer pressure. You get cultural pressure to fit in. That happens today all the time, and it just comes right down to a personal relationship. I'm gonna stand out, I'm gonna be thought to be weird or, or something. That is, we shouldn't take that lightly. That's a very strong pressure for most people. And at the risk of making uh, this sound accusatory, I really don't, but fundamentally, if that really bothers us, what does that say about our identity? Who? Who is shaping my identity then? Well, the people around me apparently have a big piece of shaping my identity. Who's supposed to be shaping my identity? Who I am in Christ. We as Christians live for an audience of one, but I also want to acknowledge that we're very tempted to live for an audience of the people around us as well. So clearly, the cultural pressure to fit in was one. Secondly, is the idea that all it takes is a story. So everybody's got a story. So Moab, and this happens to be a true story, but I'll, I'll cut it down really short. So Moab, uh, the king of Moab puts up a, a shtila, puts up a deal and says, you will not believe what my God Chemosh did. He let me conquer this people and this people and this people, and we've never had it so good. That was true that they'd never had it so good. It was true that he conquered some other nations. And when you hear that and you're an Israelite, you go, well, I don't know, you know? Looks like they believe in Chemosh and Chemosh sure seems to be blessing them. Would it really hurt if I sorta threw a little sacrifices that way? In other words, some of it is cultural pressure. The other is just temptation that, well, that's a good story. By the way, this is what every infomercial on TV is based on. I can tell you a story of, oh, this person over here, yeah, it was terrible, but you know, two times using this product, they had white teeth. Well, I should buy it. Uh, clearly it's gonna work, right? You get my point is we're all really susceptible. Well, that seems to be working for them. Maybe I need to get in on that. So there's a, a temptation 
to bring someone else in to solve your problems. Maybe we need Chemosh too, right? No disrespect intended, Yahweh. Yahweh says disrespect taken, you know, yes. So I do think those are the two reasons. And that's a great point. And they're still very much alive in us today, aren't they? Do we know if the Israelites fought the Ishmaelites prior to Muhammad and the ongoing difficulties? The uh, good question. That's just a historical question. I am not aware of any wars, and there are historical reasons for this. I'm not aware of any wars because you fundamentally only have Israel and Judah to 586 BC. All that time over in the Arabian Peninsula, you've got massive tribal warfare. You've got so many gods, it isn't funny. So there's nothing of which I'm aware, I don't think there is any, but I don't think there's anything of which I'm aware that the Israelites and the Ishmaelites had any organized conflict. Not that I know of. Good question, but not that I'm aware of. Okay? One more? Sure. Okay, you referenced earlier Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the Shema and the rest of that verse in passage 8 where it talks about binding your head, binding something on your head and your doorposts. Are those symbols idols? Uh, good question. Those symbols, okay, so the binding on your hand and your forehead, today you see Orthodox Jews strapping on what are called Tephilim and you have a little box and inside is a scroll with that verse and some other verses written on it and then on their forehead, taking it quite literally, right? In other words, I'm literally gonna put God's word on my forehead, I'm gonna pray several times a day, it depends on the different group. And then you would also have what's called a mezuzah, have you ever seen one of those on the door, door frames? Supposed to be, Orthodox Jews have it on every door in the house, okay? Sometimes you'll just see it on the front door, uh, uh, some Jewish houses, but the Orthodox Jews, every one in the house, and inside is a scroll wrapped up with God's word. Those, they don't worship those, they don't bow down to those, they don't think there are any answers in those. Those are simply things to a representative of my total devotion to God and his word. So they did not think of that as idols. One thing, however, Jews did not do is they made no what's called a graven image, meaning they didn't make images of people. There were no statues of Moses on their coins. There were no images of people on their coins. This is the commemorative coin of Moses and Aaron. No, none, because they wanted to avoid even the appearance of worshiping someone other than God. So those were intended because they had God's word inside them to represent their complete and total devotion to God. Good questions. Okay, the second answer. So the first answer to the question of why God has an issue with this is idols are not able to answer your fundamental problems. Bigger question gets answered, and this is the huge reason. It gets answered in a story I wanna tell you. So this is history. In the latter half of the eighth century, so I want you to think around 753 to 722-ish, oh, right around there, BC. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was in disarray. So here's the kingdom of Israel. Israel and Judah have split. We talked about that before, but these are Israelites in the north. 10 tribes live in that territory. 
That's today the Golan Heights and the Galilee and what the Jews call Samaria today. They were in disarray. The kingdom had six kings in a short period of time, major political problems. At the same time, the kingdom of Assyria was enjoying strong leadership and a resurgence of dominance in the region. And so Assyria was expanding in the eighth century. The Israelites knew once the Assyrians had conquered Syria, uh, same as modern day Syria, they knew that they had a military problem on their hands. <clears throat> so where do they go? Do they turn to God and say, God, we're your people, fight our battles. They don't. They turn to the gods of the people around them. They, they've got many gods. They've got their chief God, Yahweh, but I don't think he can help us with this. We might need a warrior God. We might need Baal uh, to join in. And they make an alliance with Egypt. So they rely on other gods. They rely on political alliances. And so in the latter part of the seventh century, God sends a prophet to them. Prophet's name is Hosea. He is preaching at exactly this time, and this is why he is preaching. This is God saying to his people, you are putting your trust in various idols, in your political alliance, in these other gods who aren't even real, and you think that this is going to protect you from this threat, this life situation or life problem that you have. And so he sends Isaiah to speak to them. Well, he's already spoken to them, right? I showed you, uh, or Hosea, excuse me, I showed you Isaiah and Habakkuk, and that's just a sampling of talking about there are no gods. Your identity is built around only having one God. So what he does with Hosea is something really interesting. It's not unique, but it's really interesting. So here's how the book of Hosea opens. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Isaiah. These, this is the latter half of the eighth century, and this is how you can date this. During the reign of Jeroboam, uh, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, so instead of speaking to the people, which he has done before, he says to Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a prostitute an adulterous wife, and I want you to have children with her because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in, a, in departing from the Lord. Here in this book, you see, and you'll see it other places, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God is going to put two things together. Giving your allegiance, your devotion, your worship to an idol is the same thing as committing adultery in a marriage. So he's gonna put a spiritual and physical thing together. What do they have in common? They're both covenantal arrangements. They're both arrangements where you have made a solemn covenant or commitment. And so he tells Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute and I want you to have some kids. They have three kids and you know, Twitter just goes nuts. Instagram blows up. It's like, can you believe Hosea? Hosea's parents interviewed on the evening news. He was such a good boy. But look what's happened, you know. And everybody's talking about this. And they're like, you're a prophet. What is going on here? And he begins to tell them, 
This is what you have done. This is the fundamental problem with idolatry, is you have broken the covenant, a commitment, by giving your allegiance, your devotion, your worship to someone else. And Hosea did what God told him to do. Remember our first lesson was, what's the number one requirement to be a prophet? Courage, courage to obey God. And he did. And so he married a girl named Gomer and she conceived and bore a son. They had a daughter, had another son, and he named the kids things to make a point. So the daughter, he named her No Mercy. And they said, why'd you name her that? Is that a family name? Sounds weird to us. I named her that because God says he will show you no mercy because you have departed from him. As a, the third child, and he calls him, his name is Not My People. And they go, another family name? No, another message. You are no longer my people because you have left me. And so Hosea plays this out. Well, he plays it out, and it's interesting what happens to him. Reading between, well, you don't have to read between the lines. The clear inference is that after a while, Gomer decides she's not cut out for the domestic life. She goes back to prostitution. She gets in debt, which is what happened then. I mean, it was an oppressive world. She goes back into prostitution. So God says to Hosea, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, even though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord, as I, he says, love the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. This, think of it as, uh, think of it as Baal and Asherah and uh, things that you would do as worship to them. So I bought her back for 15 shekels of silver and a certain amount of uh, agricultural goods. Now think about what God is doing here. This is happening over a period of time. We've had three kids here, marriage breaks up, everybody says, knew that was coming. I could tell you it wasn't gonna last. And so then he does something even more unthinkable. He buys her back out of slavery and lives with her again. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. And what happens when there's no faithfulness, when you've broken that bond of that covenant, you no longer have an identity. Think about the Israelite. What is their identity when they've broken their covenant with God? They have no identity. Does this sound slightly like our culture to you? You got a lot of people walking around looking for an identity in very, very strange ways. They're looking for their identity in success. They're looking for identity in ways you would never have guessed people would look for their identity. This is, God says, this is what happens when you break the covenant that defines your identity as you no longer know who you are and now you're a slave to every idol out there. He says, there is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land mourns. The land mourns. And so fundamentally, idolatry is breaking faith with God. And he literally uses the life of Hosea to show in very real concrete terms, 
you understand the covenant of marriage and every one of you would look at what's happening here and go, that is so terribly wrong. He says, now look at what you have done to me. That is so terribly wrong. And the consequences of it will be just as disastrous. This is God's compassion. God, think about how far God is going. He has Hosea buy her back out of slavery. This, by the way, is the gospel. You and I were slaves to sin and we did it ourselves. And God sent his son to buy us back. When we were still enemies, Romans says, when we were unfaithful, Christ died for us to bring us back. We were the adulterous people who sold ourselves into slavery. This story that was true of the Israelites is true for us as well. And so what God called the Israelites to was faithfulness. And that's the same thing he calls us to. One of my favorite uh, sayings from Mother Teresa, long story, but I'll just give you the saying, is when she was interviewed one time about why she does this ministry with all these dying people, they're gonna die anyway. You're not saving anybody here. And she said, I was not called to be successful. I was called to be faithful. That's the essence of the scripture. We are not called to be successful in the world's terms. We are called to be faithful. That's what God requires of us. It's what he required of Israel, and it's what he requires of us, is faithfulness. He tries to reason with us. Now I'm gonna come back to us, and he said all those promises from all those little G gods out there, they don't tell you that they're a God, they just want your devotion. They want your wholehearted commitment to them, and in return they will promise you whatever, the good life, success, fame, fortune, health, wealth, whatever it may be. And he says to you, they're not able to deliver it. They cannot answer the problems of your life. They cannot solve the issues that you face. I made you, I know you, I bought you back. Be faithful to me, and Romans 8, 28, I'm powerful enough to work every circumstance for good for those who love me. Does that make sense? That's what God is saying. And we have a choice, just like they had a choice. Sometimes our choice comes because of peer pressure. I'm not getting on to you, we've all felt that kind of peer pressure. Sometimes our choices come because we don't think God's delivering the way we want our life to work out. And God says to the Israelites, and I think he will say the same to us is, if that's what you really want, then I will give it to you. And he did. And so Israel ignored the warnings of Hosea. The Israelites in the northern kingdom placed their trust in their political alliances and in other gods. And their alliances failed. Egypt didn't answer when they called. And in 722 BC, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came and he absolutely destroyed Israel defeated them one city after another, took the people, the 10 tribes of Israel, and scattered them throughout the whole area of Mesopotamia. What's today, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, up into the Balkans, scattered them everywhere through. 
his kingdom and they literally disappeared in the pages of history. The 10 lost tribes of Israel are simply what happens when you place your trust and your devotion in things that cannot bear the weight of your trust and your devotion. And they failed them and they're gone. They're dispersed into the pages of history. Well, the moral of this story is that after they finished this, about 20 years later, they attacked Jerusalem. This is King Sennacherib. We know a lot about this because Sennacherib's palace in Nineveh, think Mosul, Iraq, was excavated in the 1800s by a guy named Layard. And Layard uncovers unbelievable, in the British Museum, unbelievable statues and all, and there are inscriptions there. And Sennacherib talks about how he invaded the rest of the Israelite kingdom. They reacted a little differently. You'll remember this. This is Isaiah and King Hezekiah. It's in 701 BC, about 20 years later. And instead of relying on idols, instead of making political alliances, Hezekiah takes the letter that's sent to him and lays it out in the temple and says, Lord, these people have insulted you, not me. We can't defeat these people. We're completely reliant on you. And according to the scriptures, Sennacherib and his army all gather around and they wake up one morning and hundreds of thousands of the soldiers are dead. And he leaves and he never conquers Jerusalem. Sennacherib's, and this is really amazing, when you uh, decipher the cuneiform writing, Sennacherib boasts about all of the places he's taken, but he doesn't boast about conquering Jerusalem. He said, well, I did get Hezekiah. I just sort of circled up and captured him like a bird in a cage. And he paid me some money and I went away. Oh yeah, you didn't mention about all the soldiers that died, did you? Well, no, that doesn't look so good. But the interesting thing is, you get one kingdom that relies on their gods, you get Hezekiah who relies on the God of the covenant, stays faithful to him. And look how that plays out through history. One, you have people who are on their own, and the other, you have people who are relying on God. That's the story that God is telling about the idea of idolatry. And that happened to Israel in real history so that you and I would learn that idols are no gods at all, that they do not have the answers that you seek and they cannot solve the problems of your life. The God who defines you is the only one who can save you. The prophets of Israel pled with the people to turn away from these idols, to not place their trust in these idols. And for reason after reason, in generation after generation, and this is a lesson that has to be taught in every generation, isn't it? The gods of this world are working very, very hard on the children of this generation. And I'm afraid that if we are not telling them the story of God's faithfulness, they'll be pretty defenseless to the idols of this world. We're called to be examples of faithfulness to God and we're called to transmit that to our children as well. Idolatry is probably uh, the largest problem that we share today with the Israelites. I mean, we're not fighting any big battles, we're not trying to conquer any nations. But fundamentally, the idols of our day are more subtle and more appealing 
than the idols of their day. And so I hope that we'll heed the message from the various prophets of God is that money and power and fame and having things turn control is a great idol. Like if you give me this devotion, you can control how things are going to go. If you marry this person, it's gonna be happily ever after because you won't have any control issues. You don't believe that, do you? Good, um, because that's the way we're made, isn't it? This lesson is a powerful lesson, and I think it's probably the, the most prominent issue that we have today, is the idea of idolatry, and it's the least recognized, because we don't bow down in front of carved images, but we do have our allegiance and our devotion tested every day. Next time, I'm gonna talk about one other thing, and this one's gonna get a little wild. Prophets also told apocalyptic things. I mean, they had visions from God that are so wild that the Israelites were just scratching their head like, Ezekiel, were you eating mushrooms before you had this? I mean, what is up with this? And yet, if we know the code, we know exactly what God was trying to tell them. So we'll decode that next week.